This is the Power Producers Podcast, where we are refining and redefining the sales game. Rule number one is you have to believe in yourself. You're the only one who doesn't think you belong in this appointment. The prospect has already validated your existence by scheduling time with you. Get it through your head you belong here. Go in there, crush it, and close the deal. A place where sales professionals can come to learn from other sales professionals and thought leaders that have mastered their craft. The difference between a good salesperson and a best-in-class salesperson is only two minutes. By spending an extra two minutes on what you might think is a mundane task in the sales game, you separate yourselves from the pack, you grow your book of business, you close more deals, and you retain your accounts. As well as their peers who are still striving for perfection to achieve their why. I have a wife and four kids. Failure is not an option. Real sales professionals. Real stories. Real results. It's no different than being a professional baseball player. You can't be a one-trick pony. You have to be a five-tool player in order to succeed in this game. This is the Power Producers Podcast. Production redefined. Are you ready to feel the power? Everybody is in for a treat today. You have the ability to go way back in my personal life. Today's guest is Mr. Brian Lovell. He is with Van Dyke Mortgage, and I'm going to let him tell you a little bit about what he does throughout the course of this episode, but I have known this cat since he was probably 10 years old, (laughs) and I was subletting space on an athletic store's heat press and having him do my job for $2 an hour, and I was clearing two off the top while I watched. (laughs) It was a page straight out of Tom Sawyer's book. I got to tell you, it was a brilliant one, and uh, we've been friends ever since. We uh, there's been times that we've been to the uh, dog track and I may or may not have placed bets on his behalf as a minor. (laughs) And uh, the the amount of tomfoolery and chicanery and shenanigans that have ensued since has been legendary in many circles. So I just was glad to get him on here to talk a little bit about professional stuff. And uh, I think it'll be very, very valuable to our audience to hear a little bit about what's going on specifically with the events uh, that are happening with the coronavirus, in addition to uh, just sort of how mortgage officers think. I think that that's a holy grail for a lot of insurance agencies and agency owners out there, and um, it's a uh, it's a good opportunity. Yeah, would have to agree. Thanks for the opportunity to jump on with you guys. And, uh, and chat a little bit. And uh, David, I got to say, like, if our parents are getting an opportunity to listen to this, they probably never thought we would grow up and be big boys. But look at us now. <laughs> we are little boys in big boys' bodies. <laughs> so, yeah, the shenanigans were definitely uh, things of legend. I don't know that things have changed all that much. Maybe we've just matured a little bit, but there's still uh, some fun and excitement going on there, too. I agree. I agree. Especially, uh, you know, bucket list trip a couple years ago, we got to go down to Nicaragua and hang out to the uh, promo Star factory. That was a pretty solid trip that I will never go on again due to a little thing called civil unrest. <laughs> yeah. I, don't, I don't believe despite coronavirus, I don't believe we're allowed to travel to Nicaragua anymore. Uh, I, no, we're not. I mean, it was literally like two weeks after we got back that like thousands of people were murdered around the general airport where we flew in. It was insane. Listen, I will never forget this. I'm going to digress for a few (laughs) seconds. 
before we dive dive into this whole thing, and I, I mean, some of the people listening to this have heard this story because it is legendary. But when we got down there, um, they didn't book our room. Like we're we're in a what amounts to being a third world country. Amounts. It um, is a third world country. Yeah, <laughs> and we're sitting here with no place to stay. And the first issue that I had is the guy from the cigar place that we booked this through is messaging me through an unfamiliar <laughs> uh, cell phone number. And we accused him of having a burner phone in Nicaragua, uh, which is basically what he had. But we show up and they had completely forgotten to book the rooms for us. So there's like 16 That's people awesome. standing outside waiting to get into this hotel and none of us can get in because there's no reservation. So they're like, Oh, no big deal. You know, we got this other place around the corner. Da, 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 da. And so they, they go, they book the, the room at this other hotel and they come back and they say, um, we're going to transport y'all in taxis. That's we're going to transport you in tax in, in, in a taxi, not taxis, one taxi. Yes, that's right. <laughs> and you need to go. You need to go. Yeah. Three people at a time in the taxi. Well, I'm not the smartest guy in the world, but I know that three is not divisible into 16. So as the groups of three started mounting and mounting and mounting, <laughs> I'm left with a guy and um, and his kid, his David awkward is, college age kid. Yeah, it was, David is the loner. <laughs> yeah, it was it was Jack Talks Ty and his college age kid. <laughs> yes. And so I'm like, listen, man, it, it, there were three of them. There were three people total. I said, go ahead. I don't want to split anybody up, whatever else. So I end up in the back of this cab solo in Managua, Nicaragua. And this cab for the entire time has run like clockwork. Like it's 10 minutes round trip. He said, yes. it's not going to be a minute or two off. It's 10 minutes round trip. And I'm in the back of this cab. I've got 1500 in cash, my computer equipment and my luggage with me. <laughs> And it's 10, 15, 20, 25 minutes. And this guy keeps looking over his shoulder to see, like, I don't even know what he was looking over his shoulder at, but it's amazing how good your Spanish comes back to you when oh. you're in the back of a cab in Nicaragua for 25 minutes when you should have already been 100%. where you were supposed to be. <laughs> listen, by the way, if I can give some a visual to this cab, it's the type of car that when David got in the back seat, the tires started to rub as it went down the road and, and not because, you know, David is like, you know, obese or anything, but because they just apparently don't have shocks on vehicles in Nicaragua. <laughs> it was insane. And so we're in, I'm in the middle of downtown. If there is such a thing, Managua, there are like goats walking across the street. There's like a, a burning barrel on the side. It was almost like the apocalypse or something. And I'm literally thinking, what am I going to do if this guy comes at me? Or I'm thinking like a, you know, with Rush Hour or one of those Jackie Chan movies where the dude on the motorbike pulls up and mugs me, takes my briefcase and, and heads off on his uh, motorbike. And I'm thinking, I think I can rip the handle because it had a roll up handle on the door. I think I can rip that out and jam this guy in the neck <laughs> if he comes after me because I'm going to have to survive. I took a picture of my passport and I texted it to my wife and I said, there's some strange stuff going down. I don't know what's going to happen. <laughs> But there's a jump drive in the top right corner of my gun safe that has all of the insurance paperwork and everything you need. If I don't come home, oh here's a picture God. of my passport in case anybody's looking for it. And it was like another 10 minutes. And we finally I got I get to this place. It was an absolutely pristine resort. Yes. 
Beautiful. With razor wire. Beautiful. Razor wire yeah. around the printer. Yes, beautiful resort. If you were once you were in the resort and you couldn't see anything outside, you were like, wow, this is absolutely amazing. But if you did, if you got too close to the perimeter, you saw the razor wire around it. And I believe, too, if I'm not mistaken, David, the guys at the gate had machine guns. That that was our protection awesome. for the evening. That was, that was everywhere we went. Guys <laughs> with guns. And, and so you ask, you know, you ask why you're there. So what's up with all the security? Do we really need all of the armed guards with the machine guns? And they're like, no, it's just that security labor is so cheap here. Why not? Like as if that was going to be any more comforting. <laughs> yeah. And the only other thing I will tell you about that trip, besides the fact if I'm ever on Final Jeopardy, and the question is tobacco and the cigar making process, I will definitely bet the farm. Yes. But I bought a pair of custom iguana skin boots. Oh. Yes. That was $150. These things would have been 1200 bucks if I bought them in the U.S. And some dude shows up in a pickup truck. He doesn't have a size 13. Imagine that. And he traces my foot on a legal pad. He takes like three different measurements. And a day and a half later, dude shows up with a pair of iguana skin boots that fit like a glove. These are incredible. He wears now, them to the office with no socks all the time. <laughs> now do you have the matching belt to go with the iguana boots when buying iguana skin boots in nicaragua one must always <laughs> buy the matching belt. i love it yeah that was a bucket list item it was a great time and it was 500 bucks that's the best thing i think we had filet and lobster for dinner it was 14 dollars i gave the waitress, <laughs> yeah. i gave the waitress 50 bucks because i felt guilty and i think that i made her year it was it was just insane it really helps you take for granted uh into perspective what we take for granted. Yeah, absolutely. Here. Definitely right. blessed. Definitely blessed. All right. Enough fun about Nicaragua. Let's get down to brass tacks. Let's, Let's do it. Do it. So every successful person that we talk to, Brian, you know, typically has a routine. Obviously, I would imagine over the last week, your routine has changed a little bit <laughs> with all of the uh, Corona stuff going on. But what's your normal routine look like? Yeah, you could definitely say that. I, I would say, man, my routine is probably pretty boring. And uh, as I get into it, I, I think I'm a little bit okay with that. You know, as they say that, you know, success sometimes is boring. It's like a repetition of doing the same things over and over again, right? But uh, most days for me, you're right, they don't differ too much. Typically get up early, get a workout in, help get the kids ready for school. Maybe do even do a little reading and uh, start to get into my time block for the day. Uh, my professional routine is pretty much surrounded by what are the activities that I need to be doing on a daily, weekly, or monthly basis um, that drive our business. And if you were to look at my calendar um, for that time block, you would find, hopefully you would find that that is a reflection of my priorities. Um, so I've identified, you know, what are those key things, those crucial items that we have to do? And uh, my time block is built around doing those. And that's how we go about getting it done. I remember a time in your life when your daily routine started at 5 a.m. at the YMCA and finished at 5 p.m. at the YMCA. Yes, I was. And perhaps, there. perhaps if we had that same daily routine, shocks would not be necessary in the back of Nicaragua. No, absolutely not. Now, I will say I, I do. Uh, I did work out this morning at 5 a.m. I do that about twice a week. That's not the everyday thing, but uh but yeah, that's part of it. And I, I mean, I'll tell you what I'll find, whether you get up that early or not to get a workout in, uh, on those days, I definitely feel like I get more done than the average bear. 
you know, by lunchtime, I've probably gotten more done than most people get all done all day. No, I agree with that wholeheartedly. So getting up early is part of the routine that I had to deal with when I was in the grocery industry. And I can remember very specifically that you, uh, sir, had some level of responsibility as a front end coordinator at Publix, (laughs) possibly a a legendary position. Yeah, like my favorite job ever. I have listen. I have a philosophy in life that I think everybody should work in a grocery store, a restaurant, or some retail environment 100%. to understand how to deal with the public at their absolute worst. And if there's anything that I took out of my time in the grocery industry, it's how to deal with the nastiest person and turn them into your most raving fan. So that's my takeaway. What did you learn? from the grocery industry that you still carry with you today? Listen, first, I've got to say, so I, I'm a Publix alum. No no offense to you, when dixie uh David. But, uh, man, I, and I'll tell you, even though Publix Everybody is Everybody knows great, Publix is where it's at. Yeah. They I mean, didn't call that, us the beef people for no reason. <laughs> yeah. But, um, you know, the, although the culture has changed there quite a bit, I, I think for me, um, I probably really learned a work ethic there. That's probably what stood out the most to me. Because the bottom line there is like, if you wanted to get ahead, you had to earn it. You you didn't, you weren't given anything. Um, you had to outwork the guy that was slinging groceries right next to you if you wanted to get to the next level. Um, and I would say there too, like I, I did, and David, I'm sure you experienced the same thing at Winn-Dixie. Like I worked with some pretty solid leaders too. And uh, some folks who took the time to invest in a, uh, you know, arrogant young kid who probably didn't deserve their time. And certainly didn't appreciate it then like I do now. Um, but I took away that that was something that I wanted to make sure I was leaving as a legacy too. Is that people were willing to take the time and invest in me. And because of my appreciation for that, you know, I want to pay that forward as well. Those are probably the two things that, uh, <clears throat> you know, I, I, I took the most out of that. Yeah, I'll tell you, one of the things that I found interesting in, I agree with what you said if you worked hard and you learned the industry, the ability to advance was 100% contingent yeah. upon your own desire to succeed. I don't think that that's any different from any other occupation that you would go into, but I think it's very tangible there. That's one of the best things about it. It's also kind of one of the weird things about it, because if you were able to stock eight cans of pork and beans at one time using four in each hand while simultaneously rolling the labels out so that your shelves were front faced, you had a really good shot at being a store manager and you have absolutely zero Zero skills outside of that. (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, it's great. You might have a store manager that can stock like a son of a bitch, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to turn profit on the bottom line. No, so no. It's, think, it's crazy. You know, Kyle, to your point, you were saying, you know, everybody knows Publix is where it's at. Right. And I oh, think, without a, without a doubt. you know, for me, I look at that company and they're they're different. Right. You, you they're different than every other gro- every other grocery store out there. And so one of the things I took away, too, is like they're innovators, they're disruptor disruptors um, in that space. And, you know, you have to look whether regardless of what kind of business you have or what kind of business that you're in. I think, too, David, you would agree if you want to get ahead, you've got to have those traits, too. It's, hey, how, how can we create a value add within our organization that people just can't get anywhere else? And, and I think if you stopped for a minute and you thought about that particular brand, 
off the top of your head, you could name three things that make them different than any other grocer out there. If you were able to make me a 12 inch boar's head ultimate, that would be a differentiator for your brand. Okay. I, I have no skill set whatsoever in making sandwiches, but uh, I do understand where you're coming from. Your wife makes wicked fried hot. <laughs> yeah, she does. Yes, she does. From scratch. <laughs> yes, she does. And obviously, if you could see me on video right now, you could tell my wife can really cook. <laughs> That's why you got to get up and do those 5 a.m.ers. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. <laughs> nice. So, I mean, we uh, obviously talking about the grocery industry. When did you transition into the mortgage world? Oh, dude. I could not have picked a worse time. So have you ever seen them? Have you ever seen the movie, the big short? Yes. Oh, I've right, heard right? Of that. Actually, no, I've not seen that. I've heard of that. Okay. Well, so if you've ever heard of the movie, big short, if you haven't watched it, go watch it. It's actually a great movie, but it is about the financial meltdown of 2007, 2008, 2009, somewhere in there. So one night I'm sitting on the couch, my wife and I are watching this movie, the big short. And, uh, they show, um, you know, like when they bring up uh, screenshots or whatever of, um, you know, graphics, and it says in there, um, April 2007, the first economic indicators of global meltdown. I'll give you two guesses when I started in the mortgage business. <laughs> April That's 2007, awesome. right? I mean, so I, I literally call it the Great Depression because I was depressed every single day. <laughs> Uh, it, it was, it was a challenge for sure. I spent every dime I had and some of my dads, um, to stay afloat in that business. But I tell you what, I wouldn't change any of it for the world because it set the framework for, um, you know, who I am today, today in that business. So, you know, for me, you know, the question was, um, you know, how did I survive that, that crazy time being that I got in it when I did. And really I'll tell you like one day I just made a decision um, I just decided that I couldn't be a product of the market or my circumstances anymore, that I had to create it. So I made a commitment to myself and my family that every single day I was going to do something that was a revenue generating activity. So like, I'll give some clarity to that. In my business, taking a loan application is not a revenue generating activity. It's a product of revenue generating activities. And I think that one of the challenges most salespeople make in any line um, that they're in, whether it's insurance or mortgage or real estate or whatever you're slinging out there, is we allow ourselves to get caught up so much in our business that we don't work on our business. And so for me, I just made a conscious decision that day that uh, every single day I was going to have something on my calendar that was a revenue generating activity, and that was going to be the difference. So essentially, like I said, I made the di- I made the distinction between what is working on my business and what is working in my business. And the majority of my time needed to be spent working on my business. Yeah, I agree with that. So, you know, you we've sort of glossed over kind of you starting out as the loan application jockey to the role that you have today. Uh, it would probably be good if you gave a little clarity as to what you're what you're doing now and, and talk a little bit about what the best part of your job today is versus where you started and what you 
enjoy the most specifically about what you do with Van Dyke? Yeah. So, uh, as I said, I started off in April, 2000, April, 2007, I was a loan originator and I was just out there pounding the streets, building relationships, um, so that folks would send me their referrals for, you know, purchase or refinance transactions. And, um, I did that for, I guess about four years. And then I got an opportunity to get this is the Power Producers Podcast, where we are refining and redefining the sales game. Rule number one is you have to believe in yourself. You're the only one who doesn't think you belong in this appointment. The prospect has already validated your existence by scheduling time with you. Get it through your head you belong here. Go in there, crush it, and close the deal. A place where sales professionals can come to learn from other sales professionals and thought leaders that have mastered their craft. The difference between a good salesperson and a best-in-class salesperson is only two minutes. By spending an extra two minutes on what you might think is a mundane task in the sales game, you separate yourselves from the pack, you grow your book of business, you close more deals, and you retain your accounts. As well as their peers who are still striving for perfection to achieve their why. I have a wife and four kids. Failure is not an option. Real sales professionals. Real stories. Real results. It's no different than being a professional baseball player. You can't be a one-trick pony. You have to be a five-tool player in order to succeed in this game. This is the Power Producers Podcast. Production redefined. Are you ready to feel the power? Everybody is in for a treat today. You have the ability to go way back in my personal life. Today's guest is Mr. Brian Lovell. He is with Van Dyke Mortgage, and I'm going to let him tell you a little bit about what he does throughout the course of this episode, but I have known this cat since he was probably 10 years old, <laughs> and I was subletting space on an athletic store's heat press and having him do my job for $2 an hour, and I was clearing two off the top while I watched. <laughs> it was a page straight out of Tom Sawyer's book. I got to tell you, it was a brilliant one, and uh, we've been friends ever since. We uh, there's been times that we've been to the uh, dog track and I may or may not have placed bets on his behalf as a minor. <laughs> Never and uh, the, the amount of tomfoolery and chicanery and shenanigans that have ensued since has been legendary in many circles. So I just was glad to get him on here to talk a little bit about professional stuff. And uh, I think it'll be very, very valuable to our audience to hear a little bit about what's going on specifically with the events uh, that are happening with the coronavirus, in addition to uh, just sort of how mortgage officers think. I think that that's a holy grail for a lot of insurance agencies and agency owners out there, and um, it's, a, uh, it's a good opportunity. Yeah, would have to agree. Thanks for the opportunity to jump on with you guys. And, uh, and chat a little bit. And uh, David, I got to say, like, if our parents are getting an opportunity to listen to this, they probably never thought we would grow up and be big boys. But look at us now. <laughs> we are little boys in big boys' bodies. <laughs> so, yeah, the shenanigans were definitely uh, things of legend. I don't know that things have changed all that much. Maybe we've just matured a little bit, but there's still uh, some fun and excitement going on there, too. I agree. I agree. Especially, uh, you know, bucket list trip a couple years ago, we got to go down to Nicaragua and hang out at the uh, Promo Cigar Factory. That was a pretty solid 
trip that I will never go on again due to a little thing called civil unrest. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't believe, despite coronavirus, I don't believe we're allowed to travel to Nicaragua anymore. Uh, I, no, we're not. I mean, it was literally like two weeks after we got back that like thousands of people were murdered around geez. the general airport where we flew in. It was insane. Listen, I will never forget this. I'm going to digress for a few <laughs> seconds before we dive dive into this whole thing. And I, I mean, some of the people listening to this have heard this story because it is legendary. But when we got down there, um, they didn't book our room. Like we're we're in a, what amounts to being a third world country. Amounts. It um, is a third world country. Yeah. And <laughs> we're sitting here with no place to stay. And the first issue that I had is the guy from the cigar place that we booked this through is messaging me through an unfamiliar <laughs> uh, cell phone number. And we accused him of having a burner phone in Nicaragua. <laughs> Uh, which is basically what he had, but we show up and they had completely forgotten to book the rooms for us. So there's like 16 That's people awesome. standing outside waiting to get into this hotel and none of us can get in because there's no reservation. So they're like, Oh, no big deal. You know, we got this other place around the corner. Da, 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 da. And so they, they go, they book the, the room at this other hotel and they come back and they say, um, we're going to transport y'all in taxis. That's we're going to transport you in tax in, in, in a taxi, not taxis, one taxi. Yes, that's right. <laughs> and you need to go. You need to go. Yeah. Three people at a time in the taxi. Well, I'm not the smartest guy in the world, but I know that three is not divisible into 16. So as the groups of three started mounting and mounting and mounting, <laughs> I'm left with a guy and, um, and his kid, his David awkward is, college age kid. Yeah, it was, David is the loner. Yeah, it was it was Jack Talks Ty and his college age <laughs> yes. kid. And so I'm like, listen, man, it, it, there were three of them. There were three people total. I said, go ahead. I don't want to split anybody up, whatever else. So I end up in the back of this cab solo in Managua, Nicaragua. And this cab for the entire time has run like clockwork. Like it's 10 minutes round trip. He said, yes. it's not going to be a minute or two off. It's 10 minutes round trip. And I'm in the back of this cab. I've got 1500 in cash, my computer equipment and my luggage with me. <laughs> and it's 10, 15, 20, 25 minutes. And this guy keeps looking over his shoulder to see, like, I don't even know what he was looking over his shoulder at, but it's amazing how good your Spanish comes back to you when oh. you're in the back of a cab in Nicaragua for 25 minutes when you should have already been 100%. where you were supposed to be. <laughs> now listen, by the way, if I can give some a visual to this cab, it's the type of car that when David got in the back seat, the tires started to rub as it went down the road. <laughs> and, and not because, you know, David is like, you know, obese or anything, but because they just apparently don't have shocks on vehicles in Nicaragua. <laughs> It was insane. And so we're in, I'm in the middle of downtown. If there is such a thing, Managua, there are like goats walking across the street. There's like a, a burning barrel on the side. It was almost like the apocalypse or something. And I'm literally thinking, what am I going to do if this guy comes at me? Or I'm thinking like a, you know, with rush hour or one of those Jackie Chan movies where the dude on the motorbike pulls up and mugs me, takes my briefcase and, and heads off on his uh, motorbike. 
And I'm thinking, I think I can rip the handle because it had a roll-up handle on the door. I think I can rip that out and jam this guy in the neck <laughs> if he comes after me because I'm going to have to survive. I took a picture of my passport and I texted it to my wife and I said, there's some strange stuff going down. I don't know what's going to happen, <laughs> but there's a jump drive in the top right corner of my gun safe that has all of the insurance paperwork and everything you need if I don't come home. Oh here's a picture God. of my passport in case anybody's looking for it. And it was like another 10 minutes. And we finally, I got, I get to this place. It was an absolutely pristine resort yes. with razor wire, beautiful. razor wire yeah. around the printer. Yes. Beautiful resort. If you were, once you were in the resort and you couldn't see anything outside, you were like, wow, this is absolutely amazing. But if you did, if you got too close to the perimeter, you saw the razor wire around it. And I believe, too, if I'm not mistaken, David, the guys at the gate had machine guns. That that was our protection awesome. for the evening. That was, that was everywhere we went. <laughs> and, and so you ask, you know, you ask while you're there, so what's up with all the security? Do we really need all of the armed guards with the machine guns? And they're like, no, it's just that security labor is so cheap here. Why not? Like as if that was going to be any more comforting. <laughs> yeah. And the only other thing I will tell you about that trip, besides the fact if I'm ever on Final Jeopardy and the question is tobacco and the cigar making process, I will definitely bet the farm. Yes. But I bought a pair of custom iguana skin boots. Oh, yes. That was $150. These things would have been 1200 bucks if I bought them in the U.S., and some dude shows up in a pickup truck. He doesn't have a size 13. Imagine that. And he traces my foot on a legal pad. He takes like three different measurements. And a day and a half later, dude shows up with a pair of iguana skin boots that fit like a glove. These are incredible. He wears now, them to the office with no socks you, all the time. <laughs> <laughs> now, do you have the matching belt to go with the iguana boots? When buying iguana skin boots in Nicaragua, one must always buy a matching belt. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, that was a bucket list item. It was a great time. And it was 500 bucks. That's the best thing. I think we had filet and lobster for dinner. It was $14. I gave, the waitress, <laughs> I gave the waitress 50 bucks because I felt guilty, and I think that I made her year. It was it was just insane. It really helps you take for granted. Uh, into perspective what we take for granted. Yeah, absolutely. Sure. Definitely blessed. Definitely blessed. All right. Enough fun about Nicaragua. Let's get down to brass tacks. Let's do it. Let's do it. So every successful person that we talk to, Brian, you know, typically has a routine. Obviously, I would imagine over the last week, your routine has changed a little bit with all of the uh, Corona stuff going on. But what's your normal routine look like? Yeah, you could definitely say that. I, I would say, man, my routine is probably pretty boring. And uh, as I get into it, I, I think I'm a little bit okay with that. You know, as they say that, you know, mm -hmm. success sometimes is boring. It's like a repetition of doing the same things over and over again, right? But uh, most days for me, you're right, they don't differ too much. Typically get up early, get a workout in, help get the kids ready for school. Maybe do even do a little reading and uh, start to get into my time block for the day. Uh, my professional routine is pretty much surrounded by what are the activities that I need to be doing on a daily, weekly, or monthly basis um, that drive our business. And if you were to look at my calendar um, for that time block, you would find, hopefully you would find that that is a reflection of my priorities. Um, so I've identified, you know, what are those key things, those crucial items that we have to do. And uh, my time block is built around doing those. 
And that's how we go about getting it done. I remember a time in your life when your daily routine started at 5 a.m. at the YMCA and finished at 5 p.m. at the YMCA. Yes, I was perhaps perhaps if we had that same daily routine, shocks would not be necessary in the back of Nicaragua. Absolutely not. Now, I will say I I do. uh, I did work out this morning at 5 a.m. I do that about twice a week. That's not the everyday thing. But uh, but yeah, that's part of it. I I mean, I'll tell you what I find, whether you get up that early or not to get a workout in uh, on those days, I definitely feel like I get more done than the average bear. You know, by lunchtime, I've probably gotten more done than most people get all done all day. No, I agree with that wholeheartedly. So getting up early is part of the routine that I had to deal with when I was in the grocery industry. And I can remember very specifically that you, uh, sir, had some level of responsibility as a front-end coordinator at Publix, (laughs) possibly a uh, legendary position. Yeah, like my favorite job ever. I have Listen, I have a philosophy in life that I think everybody should work in a grocery store, a restaurant, or some retail environment 100%. to understand how to deal with the public at their absolute worst. And if there's anything that I took out of my time in the grocery industry, it's how to deal with the nastiest person and turn them into your most raving fan. So that's my takeaway. What did you learn from the grocery industry that you still carry with you today? Listen, first, I've got to say, so I, I'm a Publix alum. No no offense to you, Win dixie uh, David. But, uh, man, I, and I'll tell you, even though Publix Everybody is Everybody knows place, Publix is where it's at. Yeah. They didn't call us the beef people for no reason. <laughs> yeah. But, um, you know, the, although the culture has changed there quite a bit, I, I think for me, um, I probably really learned a work ethic there. That's probably what stood out the most to me. Because the bottom line there is like, if you wanted to get ahead, you had to earn it. You, you didn't, you weren't given anything. Um, you had to outwork the guy that was slinging groceries right next to you if you wanted to get to the next level. Um, and I would say there too, like I, I did, and David, I'm sure you experienced the same thing at Winn-Dixie. Like I worked with some pretty solid leaders too. And uh, some folks who took the time to invest in a, uh, you know, arrogant young kid who probably didn't deserve their time. And certainly didn't appreciate it then like I do now. Um, but I took away that that was something that I wanted to make sure I was leaving as a legacy too. Is that people were willing to take the time and invest in me. And because of my appreciation for that, you know, I want to pay that forward as well. Those are probably the two things that, uh, <clears throat> you know, I, I, I took the most out of that. Yeah, I'll tell you, one of the things that I found interesting in, I agree with what you said if you worked hard and you learned the industry, the ability to advance was 100% contingent upon your own desire to succeed. I don't think that that's any different from any other occupation that you would go into, but I think it's very tangible there. That's one of the best things about it. It's also kind of one of the weird things about it, because if you were able to stock eight cans of pork and beans at one time using four in each hand while simultaneously rolling the labels out so that your shelves were front faced, you had a really good shot at being a store manager and you have absolutely zero Zero skills outside of that. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) 
So, you know, it's great. You might have a store manager that can stock like a son of a bitch, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to turn profit on the bottom line. No, so no. It's, think, it's crazy. You know, Kyle, to your point, you were saying, you know, everybody knows Publix is where it's at. Right. And I oh, think, without, without a doubt. you know, for me, I look at that company and they're they're different. Right. You, you they're different than every other every other grocery store out there. And so one of the things I took away, too, is like they're innovators, they're disruptor disruptors um, in that space. And, you know, you have to look whether regardless of what kind of business you have or what kind of business that you're in. I think, too, David, you would agree if you want to get ahead, you've got to have those traits, too. It's, hey, how, how can we create a value add within our organization that people just can't get anywhere else? And, and I think if you stopped for a minute and you thought about that particular brand off the top of your head, you could name three things that make them different than any other grocer out there. If you were able to make me a 12 inch boar's head ultimate, that would be a differentiator <laughs> for your brand. Okay. I, I have no skill set whatsoever in making <laughs> sandwiches, but uh, I do understand where you're coming from. Your wife makes wicked fried hot. <laughs> yeah, she does. Yes, yeah, she does. <laughs> from scratch. <laughs> yes, she does. <laughs> And obviously, if you could see me on video right now, you could tell my wife can really cook. <laughs> That's why you got to get up and do those 5 a.m.ers. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. <laughs> nice. So, I mean, we obviously talking about the grocery industry, when did you transition into the mortgage world? Oh, dude, I could not have picked a worse time. So have you ever <laughs> seen them? Have you ever seen the movie The Big Short? Yes. Oh, I've I mean, heard of Actually, no, I've not seen that. I've heard of that. Okay. Well, so if you've ever heard of the movie Big Short, if you haven't watched it, go watch it. It's actually a great movie, but it is about the financial meltdown of 2007, 2008, 2009, somewhere in there. So one night I'm sitting on the couch. My wife and I are watching this movie, The Big Short, and uh, they show, um, you know, like when they bring up uh, screenshots or whatever of, um, you know, graphics, and it says in there, um, April 2007, the first economic indicators of global meltdown. I'll give you two guesses when I started in the mortgage business. <laughs> April That's 2007, awesome. right? I mean, so I, I literally call it the Great Depression because I was depressed every single day. <laughs> uh, it, yeah. it, was, it was a challenge for sure. I spent every dime I had and some of my dad's um, to stay afloat in that business. But I tell you what, I wouldn't change any of it for the world because it set the framework for, um, you know, who I am today, today in that business. So, you know, for me, you know, the question was, um, you know, how did I survive that, that crazy time being that I got in it right. when I did. And really I'll tell you like one day I just made a decision. Um, I just decided that I couldn't be a product of the market or my circumstances anymore that I had to create it. So I made a commitment to myself and my family that every single day I was going to do something that was a revenue generating activity. So like, I'll give some clarity to that. In my business, taking a loan application is not a revenue generating activity. It's a product of revenue generating activities. And I think that one of the challenges most salespeople make in any line um, that they're in, whether it's insurance or mortgage or real estate or whatever you're slinging out there is we allow ourselves to get caught up so much in our business that we don't work on our business. And so for me, I just made a conscious decision that day. 
that uh, every single day I was going to have something on my calendar that was a revenue generating activity. And that was going to be the difference. So essentially, like I said, I made the I made the distinction between what is working on my business and what is working in my business. And the majority of my time needed to be spent working on my business. Yeah, I agree with that. So, you know, you we've sort of glossed over kind of you starting out as the loan application jockey to the role that you have today. Uh, it would probably be good if you gave a little clarity as to what you're what you're doing now and, and talk a little bit about what the best part of your job today is versus where you started and what you enjoy the most specifically about what you do with Van Dyke. Yeah. So uh, as I said, I started off in April 2000, April 2007. I was a loan originator and I was just out there pounding the streets, building relationships um, so that folks would send me their referrals for, you know, purchase or refinance transactions. And um, I did that for, I guess, about four years. And then I got an opportunity to get into a leadership position and, uh, you know, before I got into the mortgage business, I was a district sales manager for a retailer. Um, David, like you said, that's like the proving ground, I think, for a lot of things. And uh, the company came to me one day and said, hey, listen, we, we are interested in growing. And, uh, and we think that you'd be really great to lead our sales organization into where we're going. Now, at the time, there were like seven of us. And I think we were closing about 25 loans a month. And uh, we grew it pretty large. Um, and I think, you know, in some of our, uh, on average, our best months that we had after we grew it were somewhere in the neighborhood of 225, 250 units a month. And uh, that afforded me uh, opportunity to uh, get some increasing responsibility. And today um, I serve that group as the national director of business growth and sales. And uh, so my my uh, role has certainly morphed over that time. And uh, I will tell you, it was a difficult decision for me to get out of production because, remember, I got in at a very difficult time and I had cut my teeth and I had finally gotten to a place where I was not having to ask my dad for money every single month to make ends meet. And uh, and I was loving life. And, um, <clears throat> you know, the, to make the transition into, you know, it, Everybody who's in a leadership position realizes shortly that you are serving the other people that are underneath you. They are not serving you. And uh, that was a passion that restored to me pretty quickly. Uh, when the company originally came to me, I think it took me four months to say, yeah, I think I'll take that gig. Uh, because at the time, I was just being very selfish to wanting to only have to worry about me. So you know, to kind of answer your question, like what's the best part or my favorite part of my job now? Um, <clears throat> you know, it's really investing in, in the people of our company, right? They're our greatest asset. It's the people hands down. Um, I enjoy leading from the field. So I like to get one-on-one. -on -one. I do a lot of office visits. Um, I get one-on-one -on -one with our originators and really try to uncover uh, what their needs are, coach them, <clears throat> coach them through helping them grow their business to whatever extent that may be, right? Not everybody wants to be a $100 million a year producer, and that's fine. If that's what you want, I'm going to do everything that I can to help you get there. If you want to be a $10 million a year producer, that's fine too. We'll help you reach those goals. Um, I think the other part of that is I, I love masterminding, right? I love getting an opportunity to sit down with other folks in our profession or within our company, brainstorm and as learn as much as I can. Um, and the reason is, is like, we're trying to create a company here that everybody wants to work at. 
and nobody ever wants to leave. And one of the ways we do that is through building the systems, models, and resources that help our salespeople have unique conversations out in the field so that they can gain more referral partners and, and more borrowers. And let me put that in perspective a little bit, like in our game and lending, and I'm sure much like yours, everybody pretty much has the same products. We all pretty much have the same rates and everybody closes loans fast. So what can we do to separate ourselves from everybody else? And that's really what we're trying to do. And, and I would say like in our company, that doesn't have a finish line. Like we're never going to get in a conference room one day and high five each other and pop champagne and say, we finally made it. We're going to continue to strive to be that company that everybody wants to be at and nobody ever wants to leave. <clears throat> nice. You mentioned um, there that you like leading from the field and, you know, kind of being in that servant leadership type of role. What are some ways that you keep your loan officers, um, you know, motivated? Obviously there's a chance for them to make, uh, you know, a pretty good chunk of change, but like you alluded to, that's not everybody's, that's not everybody's goal. So what are some things that you've been able to do? <laughs> yeah. So, you know, people ask me all the time, like, how do you motivate people? It's really simple. Higher motivated people. <laughs> <You know? laughs> but uh, I know that's probably not the answer that you're looking for. Um, I think what you're asking is how do you take a sales professional making great money and help them have a bigger mindset? How do you help them think bigger? Um, I, a lot of people do business planning. We do business planning in our company as well. Uh, but we try to go a little bit deeper and incorporate that a little bit more into life planning. Um, you know, do, do they have a vision that has no finish line? Like, so in other words, if people are motivated by money, at some point they reach that goal. And I think for a lot of salespeople is, hey, I just want to make a six figure income. I'd like to make a hundred grand. Well, what happens once they reach a hundred grand? If that was their motivator, it's gone, right? So we try to dig a little bit deeper than that. Um, and then like I shared, you know, our vision is to create that company everybody wants to work at and nobody ever wants to leave. So uh, we always keep moving that line ahead of us. Um, you know, if you accomplish uh, these goals, what would it mean for you and your family are some questions that I might, you know, ask those originators. What would it mean if you didn't? You know, I think sometimes people think about, well, hey, if I reach these financial goals for myself or these professional goals, maybe I could put my kids through private school or, or whatever that is. Well, what would it mean if you didn't get to put them um, into private school? Right. So right. Um, one of the other things I look at and something that my wife and I are really talking about right now is what do my children have to learn from being engaged in my business? Right. What do they have to learn from knowing um, what dad does? So if here's the thing, if, if you're thinking of a, as a leader, you don't do you genuinely care about people? as individuals. Um, because if you don't care about them as individuals, you're going to struggle at motivating them, right? They're going to see right away that you're not um, genuine. So salespeople have fragile egos. Um, even the good ones, the good ones need to be stroked, even though they make the big check, they want everybody to tell them how great they are, you know, bow down, kiss the ring, all of that. <laughs> So do the ones who are in the role of a salesperson and they're not producing. Like I've had both in my, 
experience that I've worked with. I've had, you know, both on my team, I've had people who have been really high performers and you have to know how to manage those people one way. And then you have people who in their own mind are high performers and yet they're not putting up any numbers. I mean, that's the one thing about the sales game. It's really, again, I go back to the grocery industry. You either made your numbers or you didn't. Yeah. And, you know, when I, when I deal with people, I'm, I'm kind of really black and white about it. You know, I understand you might think you're working hard and I'll take the line from Christmas vacation. So do washing machines. You know, if you're not, if you're not putting up numbers, your hard work is for nothing. So I'm interested in how you manage those fragile egos inside your organization, because that's something I'm probably not the best at. I'm pretty sure I've hurt feelings before. Yeah, David and I, by the way, you're not alone in that. I think everybody at some point is going to hurt some you know, feelings. I, you know, I think sometimes I, I run across individuals, you know, like you described, like, I mean, I, I can think of people off the top of my head right now that have worked with us for years and years and years, and they put up the same numbers year in and year out. And at the end of every year, they complain about how much money they made. Like at some point I start to lose a little bit of my patience about that. Right. It's certainly not because of us or because of me, you know, these are the choices that you're making uh, in your business. So I, I think, you know, from the ego perspective, like how do you deal with that? I, I truly try to be transparent and genuine and, and let people truly see my heart, that I'm coming from a place of contribution. This isn't about me. Uh, this is about you. Um, you know, David, you alluded to this too. Numbers tell a story, right? And I'm a believer that there's no point in playing the game if we don't keep score. But in terms of the numbers tell a story, you know, I'll give you an example. Like my weight tells a story. Okay. Now, <laughs> yes, it does. <laughs> and it starts with chocolate fountain. <laughs> my, my weight tells a story. And if you go back and listen to the beginning of this podcast, I share with you that part of my routine as I work out on a pretty regular basis. But if you looked at me and, you know, my doctor who I just saw a couple of weeks ago for my annual physical, he must've called me fat about 14 different polite ways. Um, the story is I eat like crap, right? David, you just said it, chocolate fountain. You can work out six, seven days a week. It doesn't matter if you still eat like crap. So that's the, the number. I said, the numbers tell a story. That's the story right? My weight is the number. The story is, yes, he works out every day, but the guy's still fat because he eats all the time. Um, I'm going to tell you what, I want to sue Will Smith because I heard him in an interview one time say that his philosophy to working out was he could run six and a half miles every day and then eat anything that he wants to eat. And I've done that. And I, it say, I believe work. I believe you. Dude, when I you tried are that. not running six and a half miles. I, listen, no, Kyle, I'm not. I can, Kyle, I can attest. I, I've been with him when he's actually accomplished that feat. So <laughs> he's done it at least once or twice. But yeah, it's not it's not as easy as Will Smith says, is it? That guy doesn't age, man. He's ridiculous. So. It's, it's crazy. So, I mean, here's the thing. I think it's a difference in, in the people who are listening to this right now is going to be a, a pretty eclectic group. It might be a salesperson. It might be a, a an executive that's in leadership. It may be a business owner. And I think one of the things that I always struggle with is the fact that I'm not just um, invested from a leadership standpoint or even a financial standpoint, but when you 
are the one whose blood is on the line for the success of the organization because it's your family's everything. You look at things a whole lot differently. And, you know, to me, the biggest thing that I would tell you as someone who owns the business that they work in and has a team of people that really uh, makes me go from zero to a thousand in no time is when you do have that servant's attitude, when you do everything you can for somebody and you do everything you can to sacrifice your the, the great the good for your own family and your own um, existence to make sure you're giving everybody every opportunity to succeed and they don't take advantage of it, they don't appreciate it, and most importantly, they don't even recognize it. Mm-hmm. And that's a that's a huge disconnect that I still have to figure out how to get around because I can assure you the one person who doesn't forget about that is having dinner with me every night when I go home <laughs> and is very capable of reminding me in ghetto Jersey fashion just exactly how um, that needs to go down. So, you know, I would tell you it's 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 interesting to hear how different people handle some of the same issues based on the level of, you know, emotional, physical, financial, mental investment, because it, it's different quadrants for everybody, regardless of, you know, which, which industry you come from. Yeah. I'll t- when you find out the answer to that, by the way, let me know. Because <laughs> um, I, I struggle with the same thing, you know, and I think sometimes it's, it's easy, David, like in our roles to get a little frustrated and you can, you know, hit your head against the wall because you feel like you're making this pathway very, very easy. And uh, they don't always choose to walk down it. And so, you know, one of the things that I've really had to sit sit back and take a look at is my primary role is to raise awareness, right? It's to raise awareness to you of what your numbers are saying. Are you following your business plan? Are you, you know, and by the way, when we're doing that, it's not my plan. If it was my plan, who would buy into it? Only Brian, right? Right. So we do a really we do a really good job of making sure that it's theirs so that they buy into it. So at the end of the day, when you're sitting down and you're having a conversation about, hey, where are you at compared to where you want to be? This is what you told me you wanted to do. I'm just here to raise awareness to you of this is where you're actually at. Now I'm here to help you figure out how to get from where we're at to where you want to go. And I, I think that if you don't come across genuine in that regard, people are going to see right through it. Well, I'm going to tell you, I would be remiss if I did not bring this up and ask for you to enlighten everybody listening around the world right now. But I do believe this is the appropriate time for you to drop the BLT of leadership. (laughs) The BLT. You got to have believability, likability, and trustability. (laughs) That that is... That's 100% accurate, and there was no way we were having this podcast without the BLT making an appearance. And just to wrap up this little uh, point, you know, one of the things that I say all the time is it's never the process. It's always the person. 100%. The the process itself works. You know, in, in our industry, I have been literally using the exact same process with a few minor tweaks with the addition of technology and social media for going on 20 years now. And it has worked the entire time and not just for me, but any time 
it doesn't work and somebody complains about the, the, the process not working, it's never the process. It's always the person. And the issue you have when you're dealing, especially for a salesperson that complains along those lines is all you got to do is what we already said, go back to the numbers. You know, if you're not, if you're, if you're cold calling on a certain number of people and you're not getting the results you want, that's not a process problem. That's a volume problem because you're working from 10 to three every day and not eight to five or whatever you need to work to put food on the table for your family. And I think that's one of the biggest things from a salesperson's perspective and, and as leadership, what has to be done is to keep them from making that trans transformation from a salesperson to a victim. Yes. And at the end of the day, once they hit victim status, yeah, there's right. nothing I can do to pull yeah. them out. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. I think the other thing too, to take that point further is a lot, sometimes you have to take them back to what point did you bastardize the process? right? The process works if you follow it. But at some point along the line, you either chose not to follow the process or you bastardized it to fit whatever you wanted it to be. And that's normally where it goes wrong. Well, look, a Big Mac is only a Big Mac because of the special sauce. Otherwise, it's a really crappy double-decker hamburger with lettuce on it. (laughs) (laughs) True, true. Hey, no one knows better about fast food than you. Hey, by the way, I'm going to give them a free plug, but Hardee's has a new oh, God. They have a new fried cheese Frisco breakfast sandwich. It's disgusting. it's bacon, egg, and it's breaded fried cheese patty on the sourdough bread. I literally almost had third degree burns on my uvula <laughs> because when I bit into it, the cheese was so molten it shot right to the back of my throat and I couldn't drink fast enough to get it off of there. <laughs> Dude, you you are oh, probably the one person I know in the world that has a true appreciation for Hardee's. Listen, I have a true appreciation. Look, so <laughs> no, listen, I owe it to society to try everything when it comes out at least once. That's it. <laughs> and I saw this. I was driving by. I did a Yui. I pulled in. I got it. And the rest is history. I'll never get it again. It took me three <laughs> days before I could swallow. <laughs> Oh my god. Oh funny. man, that's funny. <laughs> that's funny. Well, on that note, we were talking about the numbers. I mean, so what's and before David got on, you and I were having a little bit of a conversation about just how volatile the you know the interest rates have been right now. I mean, what are some things that you're doing to to drive revenue? Like where's the where where is everybody getting business from? Yeah, so uh, the answer to that, I mean, shoot, we could talk about that for a long time. And I think right now you, we were speaking of the volatility. I, I, I swear, I feel like right now, every couple of days, we're changing the game plan just a little bit. Um, but for the most part, the core business always remains the same. And so our, our philosophy is built around adding value to our referral partners. Um, and that we've got to come from a place of contribution. Like if you're going to ask somebody for a referral, you know, what are they going to get out of it in return kind of type thing? Um, so what we do is we try to help our loan originators provide opportunities um, through the systems and the models that we have that help them have some unique conversations um, and add some value. So like you go back to where we were at early in this conversation and I was talking about 
you know, everybody in the mortgage space has the same products, the same rates and closes loans fast. So if you're sitting down with referral partners and those are the conversations that you're having of why you should work with me, like just quit wasting your time and spending your money on Starbucks and lunches at Chili's. Or in David's case, if you would really like to earn business from him, a nice Arby's melt or Hardee's would probably get the deal done. But um, to give you an example of what I'm talking about for a value add, one of the cool things that we do is um, at the at the time that a borrower gets a conditional loan approval, um, which is where they're about halfway through the underwriting process, we send a gift to their place of business. Now, the reason for it is not about the gift. The reason is we're trying to create a conversation about real estate where they work. So I would imagine any of you who are listening and you work in an office setting, somebody in that office at some point has gotten flowers sent to them or maybe an edible arrangement, something like that. And what happens? Everybody comes up and asks, why did you get that delivered today? That created a conversation about an event. So for us doing that, we send it at conditional approval. We're trying to create a conversation about real estate where they work. Now, a good loan officer is going to take that and follow up with the borrower, say, hey, how did you like the gift that we sent you? And by the way, was there anybody in your office that was thinking about buying or selling real estate? Right. So I don't know why you're laughing. So fast forward. Imagine you're sitting in, in down with a one-on-one with a real estate agent that you're trying to earn as a referral partner, and you have that conversation and you ask, how many loan officers are you working with right now that have a system in place that happens 100% of the time to help you earn more referrals off of the deal that we're working together? My guess is there are not going to be very many agents who say, yeah, I'm working with tons of LOs like that. And that's what I mean by we're trying to create systems and models and resources for them to plug into that help them have um, some unique conversations. I could spend the whole podcast with you guys talking about what some of those are. I think the other big thing is leverage, right? And so um, for us, leverage is a big thing. People who are doing big time sales shouldn't be doing um work that takes them away from those big time sales, right? And so in my business, the two main things that those those folks need to be doing is building more relationships and pre-approving borrowers. Everything else is standing in their way of those revenue generating activities, right? There's a difference we talked about earlier of the, are you working on your business or in your business? So what we've really tried to do is provide leverage to our sales staff of the things that would have them working in their business. And so we do some things like giving them some marketing assistance. And one of the cool things I like about our marketing assistant program is that um, a lot of these resources and tools I keep telling you guys about, I wrote a lot of them and I forget everything that we have. But our marketing assistants are tasked to having a weekly call every single week with our loan originators and reminding them of all of the resources that are available to help them in their business. Um, so really, you know, going back to your initial question, what are some of the things that we're doing to help our team members? Those are some of the things that we're doing to help them have some unique conversations, provide them a little bit of leverage so that they can go out and focus on the things that drive their core business. Yeah, but I see a lot of stuff on social media. I'm a stalker. You know, I, I make jokes about it all the time. There's very few things 
that happen in people's lives that if they put it on social media that I miss it, right? That's a blessing and a curse for them. Uh, but, you know, I do know that you guys invest very heavily, at least the perception is that you invest very heavily in equipping your team to succeed. You bring in keynotes, you have events. And when I say your team, I'm not just talking about what you're doing for the people inside Van Dyke. I know there's a lot of cross-pollination between the mortgage company and the real estate offices that you work with. I'm interested if uh, what you would expand on that a little bit. Um, so in terms of some of those, uh, we do a lot of events. I think that's probably what you, the, the way you're driving this conversation down. And so, you know, my, well, I, mean, I just noticed that you haven't like, you know, told me that there's a fog machine with Thunderstruck playing and you're ready for me to bust through shirtless with a leather jacket on and to come in and get the crowd pumped. I mean, I'm so just if, that if you're, there. if you're looking for that opportunity, David, I would be more than happy to provide you with that. We can, we can make some sort of arrangement, but um, yeah, so we'll do some keynote speakers. We'll, you know, even we do a lot of zoom, right? So zoom is a technology right now. I think everybody's getting on with, we'll do some masterminds. Maybe we'll even bring not all loan originators, but we'll bring in some referral partners. So it might be an insurance guy, a real estate agent, some mortgage professionals. And we're masterminding or talking about what are some of the things that we can be doing, um, you know, to help each other or learn more about each other's businesses so that we can be more of an asset and a resource to each other. Um, you know, we do a lot of sales meetings. So, you know, on a regional level, our regional sales managers are doing Zoom calls weekly with their sales team, things that you just talked about. How do we get them pumped up? Keeping them up to date on the trends that are going on. I believe that iron sharpens iron, right? And so that comes from a proverb that says, as iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. I think one of the huge mistakes that salespeople make, David, overall, is they isolate themselves, right? And when you isolate yourself and you're not around other people, you lose camaraderie. I think um, you don't keep your, your pencil as sharp. And by the way, other people motivate me, right? Getting around other people motivates me like, Hey, if Jimmy Sue can do it and you know, Betty can do it. Anybody can do it. You, you know, I can tell you that Jimmy Sue and Betty are huge, <laughs> huge motivators for me. I mean, I'm just throwing that out there, but I mean, to your point, I can tell you that, that in our industry, it's rough because our offices are essentially landing strips, right? They're, they're docks for laptops and, you know, people don't find value in that sense of community and you have to do your part. The organization has to do their part to foster communication with the outside person and that outside person has to pull their weight and do the same. And I, I've seen it. I've seen it in my own company where people feel alienated, yet from my perspective, they're not doing anything at all to try and build relationships. They're doing nothing but isolating themselves to your point. And, you know, it, it is iron sharpens iron. And we have a responsibility that's incumbent upon all of us to make ourselves better today than we were yesterday, but not as good as we're going to be tomorrow. Yeah. And that only comes through reading, immersing yourself in industry news and things that are relevant. I mean, my daily routine every day starts before I ever get out of bed with looking at what dropped in the business journal that morning. So I know everything going on in Tampa business so that if something happens with one of my clients, I see it right there before I ever go and get to the office. Mm -hmm. And those are my talking points for that day. Same thing holds true with industry publications. I get four or five different feeds to my news box. 
Do I read every article? No, but I look at the headlines and if it's something that's relevant or something that I know that I'm going to run into on the streets, I'll dive a little deeper and make sure that I have the ability to talk about that. I don't sell health insurance. I have a joint venture with another guy that does. But if I'm at the point of sale with a prospect and their pain point is health insurance, I need to know what's going on in the health insurance marketplace so that I can redirect that conversation the way that it needs to go. It's not because somebody taught it to me. It's because it presented itself and I went out and I grabbed it and I read it and I, I made it part of my routine. And I think sometimes, you you know, it goes back to what I've said time and time again. It's the difference between being a salesperson, being a producer and being an order taker. Mm-hmm. There, there's, there's room for both in the world, yeah. you know, but if you're going to be a producer, you got to produce. You can't sit back and wait for it to be handed to you and wait for everything to come to you because you're going to fail miserably in an organization that expects you to produce. And that's a huge differentiator. I was talking to my friend Bradley Flowers uh, earlier this afternoon, and he w- we were talking about how you hire people. And even to your point, you ju- you hire the right people to begin with. His, his comment was, you don't go looking for diamonds in the rough. You just hire diamonds. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I have a, I have a regional manager that works with us. He talks a lot of time about it in our business. There are unicorns and there are donkeys. Unfortunately, the unicorns, they're the top echelon of producers that we have. Everybody else is a donkey. That works well in Shrek. I mean, (laughs) (laughs) there were you. I saw that Netflix removed a bunch of Shrek stuff and people are freaking out because they just want to binge watch Shrek during this whole quarantine situation. <laughs> that is not the first thing I thought about binge watching. <laughs> no, me neither. <laughs> me, me neither. Uh, anyways. Um, so we were talking about producers. There's a lot of producers in the insurance industry that, um, you know, reach out to mortgage offices and, and real estate agents and, and want to work with them. Um, to, you know, to get leads and everything. What's been your experience in dealing with agents and agencies? What would you say makes one more successful than another? Yeah. So the first thing I would tell you is that, you know, we actually don't get called on a whole lot by the insurance industry. I can I think, fix that problem. I, I think there's an, and I'm bringing it up because I'm saying, I think it's an opportunity uh, right away. But I would say the ones that do, they're solution-based, right? They're trying to figure out ways to add value to us. Um, Like one of the key things, like give me a reason to touch my database. Give me a reason to help a real estate agent touch their database. For for my business, most of our referrals come from a real estate agent or or from our sphere. So anything that I could take away from you that would give me an excuse or a reason to pick up the phone to hit my database or to send out, you know, a marketing piece or something like that um, always helps. Uh, Educate me on ideas, products that could save me or my clients time or money or both. Um, I think one of the big things too is, again, I don't see a lot of insurance agents playing in the space, but get, get with us and mastermind a little bit. I think that there's a power team to be, put together there that's not just lender and real estate agent, but it should be lender, real estate agent, um, insurance, and, and, and in our business, even title, you know, title, title attorney, whatever. I mean, yeah. there's a lot. I, I agree with that wholeheartedly. And I mean, it doesn't, that, that whole concept doesn't just play here. I mean, you could literally do that for anything, right? Mm-hmm. I could have yeah. a mastermind group of outside salespeople who are focusing on middle market accounts. It might have a copy machine guy 
a payroll services guy, yep. a uh, lady that's selling office supplies, an insurance person, and a, and a medical uh, insurance person. If you put that group together, you could do some damage in the middle market with that, just yeah. referring each other in and, and brainstorming on different ways that you can get into places as salespeople, not just with your specific technical abilities. Yeah. And so like another thing I'll, I'll take um, another stab too is different loan officers have different needs. You know, so like I've got guys on our guys and guys on our team that are closing 20 deals a month. Their needs are different than the one closing two or three. Um, you know, so I think from that perspective too, you got to take the time to uncover what's important to you about this relationship. What do you really need so that you can create a service model that's going to meet whatever needs that they have? Um, in other words, I think they're all a little different. I think that starts with listening. So many times I have seen this in the different back channel groups that I'm part of on social media with agents from across the country. And <clears throat> truthfully, Florida Risk Partners, not a huge personal lines agency. Don't really want to be, to be honest with you. It's it's not really what our sweet spot is. We write it and we can do a good job on the things that we write. Can we grow there? Yeah, I would have to hire a specific person that I would want to do that. So I'm not actively looking to grow that end of my business per se. If I do, you can be sure that it'll be done right. But what I what I hear when I see these people talking all the time is a post that goes something like, I'm speaking to a group of mortgage officers and here's what I'm planning on talking about. And then they proceed to give you like the five bullet points where they vomit everything that they can do for them that makes them succeed or that will make them successful and make it a good relationship and so and supposedly entice these people to give them business. And my, my comments to them unequivocally, every single time I see that thread is, why don't you just have a town hall style meeting and ask them, listen to them, tell you what they need uh -huh. instead of you assuming, you know, and I mean, when, when I was thinking about people that I wanted to have on the podcast early on, this is a need that is not, that has not been recognized inside the insurance industry and perfected. Some people have done it in microbursts and different geographies, but people are so worried about telling you how they're going to fix your problem that they haven't even stopped to listen to what your problem is yet. Yep. Yep. Yeah. You're a hundred percent right. You're a hundred percent right. And I, I think, you know, David, I know, and you probably, you may even still do this. And I did a ton of it too. When I was originating was I did a lot of business networking, like BNI, NPI type stuff. And if you take away some of the things that you learned from that, it was about getting one-on-one -on -one with the different members of your BNI group and trying to uncover, hey, what, what are the key words that I should be looking for to help you out in your business? What's important to you about your business? And I think that's in people that you're in like business networking with, but think about actual lines of customers you know, again, for us, one of the biggest ones is real estate agents. If I sit down with a real estate agent one-on-one -on -one and I vomit everything that I think is amazing to them about Van Dyke Mortgage, I may not have hit on the one thing that's most important to them. And that conversation really should start about you fact-finding and learning a little bit more about them and what's important to them in their business. At the end of that conversation, you should be able to say, Hey, David, what I heard you say today is that X, Y, and Z are important to you. Would you mind if I took five minutes to share with you how I might be able to help you with X, Y, and Z? That's the approach that I think that your 
any salesperson really needs versus you're talking like spray and pray. Let me just machine gun out everything and hope one of those lands. Yeah. I mean, I think that's one mouth and two ears. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's part of the problem is that we're so worried about trying to get deals that we're going to, everybody wants to be in sales mode, sales mode, sales mode. I can tell you that the best deals I've done have been deals where I've sat and listened. And because I've done that, and I've asked open-ended questions and had to have the other person speak and answer those, I've made notes while they're talking. And the wedge that ends up getting me the deal is something that I made in my notes on the fly, not something that I had anticipated going in. And you know, I think that so many times we look to network. And yes, channel partnering partnerships are a huge part of what I do. I don't necessarily do BNI because that's not the demographic in terms of the size and shape of accounts that I go after. But I do have a lot of respect for the fact they have a process and that they manage that process. And I replicate some of what those networking groups do, even with my informal channel partners, because it goes back to the old adage, what gets measured gets done. And if you don't have those things in place, you're not going to get the results that you're looking for. So, you know, I think that because of our background here, at Florida Risk in in how I'm networked across the country. There's going to be a lot of people in the insurance industry that listen to this conversation. My question is, I mean, I think we've probably already answered it for the most part, but you know, what would be your advice to somebody that's an insurance agent that's looking to get inside the mortgage mind? Tell them what they need to do in order to be successful in getting in touch with and working with a good mortgage broker. Yeah, so I, I think we have touched on that quite a bit, and and that really is going to be try to uncover what their needs are. So, like, I'll give you an example. The busiest loan officers, they're just looking for a quick quote. Like, hey, I got 20 loans in my pipeline. The quicker you can get me over a quote, the quicker I can finish determining, you know, what my borrower's buying power is. And, and also, you know, helping them work through, sometimes we're dealing with borrowers that have tight DTI issues. We might need you to get a little bit creative. Um, you know, on, on an insurance plan. So I think it's different for each person. I think some of them are looking for opportunities for co-marketing. Like how can we market together to maybe the same end consumer? Do some of events, help them stay in front of their clients, right? So by an event, if you did like a social on an evening where you invited all of your past clients, do you think it would be mutually beneficial if you brought your database and I brought mine? And we brought them together, um, you know, and kind of shared some cost in that or something like that. Maybe doing some first time homebuyer workshops, you know, get an opportunity to educate the consumer or agents about what are some of the things that we can help them with um, when they're working with their buyers. And, uh, you know, I, I think the other thing, too, is in our business, this is a relationship business, right? Um, for us. Listen, at- man, every every business is a relationship business unless you're a divorce attorney. And even that it's still a relationship business. You're just busting them up. I've got two questions for you because we need to wrap up. The first one is you've got John Maxwell laying all up on the counter behind you. What's on the Brian Lovell reading list right now? Okay. So there's a ton of things on the Brian Lovell reading list because Amazon makes it really easy. Somebody recommends a book. I go to my phone, I buy it. They're stacked up all behind me, like you just said. So what I'm reading, what I'm actually reading right now, 
Every single day, I read a book called Leadership Promises for Every Day by John Maxwell. It's a little bit of a devotional, but also a leadership lesson. But the but there you go, David. That's the same <laughs> book, right? Same as sitting right here on my desk. And uh, this the what? But the one I'm really studying right now um, is Atomic Habits uh, by That's James. That's the one Clear. I'm actually reading. That next, my wife just got wrapped up with it, and she told me I need Atomic Habits. So here's the last thing in wrapping up. Um, if people want to reach out to you, where do they find you? How do they get in touch with you? I know you have a personal Facebook page, but if I'm not mistaken, you also have a professional Facebook page. What's the easiest way to people get uh, t- in touch with you? If they're, Maybe it's a loan officer that's listening to this, wants to be part of a place where they can go to work and never leave. Or maybe it's just somebody who wants to learn more about the mortgage mind. Yep. So obviously you hit Facebook. LinkedIn is always a good one, too. If you put Brian Lovell into either one of their search engines, you'll find my business page and my personal page. My cell phone number, I give it out to everybody because I say all the time, I serve all who seek service, not just those I'm in business with. And that number is 813-727-1867. I'll give it one more time. 813 727-1867. Light it up, ladies and gentlemen. He he never answers anyhow, so (laughs) at least give him a creative voice message and maybe he'll call you back. (laughs) Listen, I really appreciate your time, man. It's been fun having you on and chatting and uh, you know, hearing a lot about what what's going on, man. It's been great. Thanks so much for taking the time out of your day. My pleasure. I really appreciate the opportunity. I've got something special coming your way as soon as this airs. So keep your eyes peeled. You'll get a a special delivery. I might even let Ethan uh, bring it up to the door for you. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. I can't wait. (laughs) All right. Thanks, Brian. See you, man. See you, buddy. You've been listening to the Power Producers Podcast. You can follow Killing Commercial Insurance on Facebook and YouTube. And if you want to take your game to the next level, next level, check out our book, The Extra Two Minutes, and our website, killingcommercial.com.